This is a special edition of Politics Friday on NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. George Latimer is something of a legend in St. Paul. He was the mayor of the capital city from 1976 to 1990 and still holds the record for longest-serving mayor in St. Paul's history. At age 87 and with a birthday coming up soon, he doesn't get around much anymore, but he's still been holding court from his bedroom at the Episcopal Homes in St. Paul. He's been laughing, joking, and pondering some of the most important questions we're all wrestling with. Today we're going to hear from former St. Paul Mayor George Latimer in a recent conversation with retired NPR News host Gary Eichten. Here's Gary. You have a birthday coming up, June 20th, I believe it is. Big party planned? <laughs> I got to check out who's alive, and then we, <laughs> then we could have uh, people convening. <laughs> Word has it that you uh, you got kicked out of hospice. What yeah. you didn't live up to expectations or uh, live down I, to I them? I failed or them. They, by the way, talk about euphemism that uh, Minnesotans love. Uh, they're they're graduating me. They called it. I said, graduating me? You're kicking me out. What's this graduation? And they claim to be sad even while they're happy. Actually, uh, but it's true. I'm terminating, hate the word, but terminating from uh, right now, this week, uh, maybe today or tomorrow. Yeah. Big picture questions coming up. I want to talk about education housing. You don't have to warn me. Just go ahead. Well, I want to start with how you got here in the first place. You grew up in In, in St. Paul, you mean? Yeah. Oh, that's really an interesting question. You got here uh, from New York. Yeah. Uh, I suppose the boyhood dream was to become mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota? (laughs) I I can give you a very vivid what happened. Uh, I was already in law school. Mom and I, Nan and I were married. We had... uh, Two kids already. No, one kid and the other one on the way. Um, And we lived at 125th Street, which is a Broadway of Harlem. Um, And one of my classmates was uh, the son of a labor lawyer in in St. Paul, whose name was a great lawyer, whose name was Solly Robbins. So his son, Stan, was with me in a labor law class and said, uh, how would you like to clerk this next summer with my dad? And I said, I don't know. Tell me about it. Uh-huh. And he told me in St. Paul. And so I went up to the apartment. We were in public housing at the time on 125th Street. I said, honey, get out a map. Where in the hell is St. Paul? <laughs> I had no idea. She took it out. and So, I, so I, we ended up coming in the summer of 62, Mm-hmm. And we loved St. Paul, and we had uh, the second baby by then. George was born, uh, and it was 1962, and uh, they invited me back. But coming back, they invited me to come permanently and join the firm. And that was a hard one because she has a large family. I had a large family, well, two brothers and lots of cousins and and leaving Schenectady was a big deal. None of our families had already gone west of the Mohawk River. And uh, so we put it off for a long time. So here you, you, you get here to St. Paul, to Minnesota. Uh, you know, I have a good career as a labor attorney, labor lawyer, 
St. Paul School Board, U of M Regents, I think, along the way. Now yeah. we get to 76, and you decide you're going to run for mayor, I guess, from what I understand, against all uh, suggestions from the family. But you want to be mayor. Why? Well, you're probably guessing too much about my family because there's too much uh, diversity within the five kids. Ah. But, uh, well, it was uh, like all of my choices. It was not a big, long plan of mine. I was coming home over Thanksgiving, I mean, driving from my office, and they announced that Larry Cohen wasn't running again. And so I thought, gee, that might be interesting. By then, I was making quite a lot of money. Um, and uh, so I thought, gee, that'd be interesting, running for mayor, because I had, I wasn't close, but I saw enough to know that there was great potential, but there was a little frustration at the time in the redevelopment of St. Paul. And so uh, when I got home over Thanksgiving dinner, when we were talking, I said, you know, I was just been thinking, maybe running for mayor. And so Phil, who became the retailer, who is the uh, third, he's now 59, uh, he said his typical Phil thing, hey, Dad, what does it pay? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, well, it pays only 39000 That's what I paid at the time. And he said, Dad, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the girls, being the girls, said, well, Dad, if that's what you'd like. And uh, the uh, uh, George, being George, didn't comment at all, just kind of. And then Nancy, as usual, played her role. She said, well, let's think about it and talk about it a little bit. And uh, so that's what started it. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, and that's when I decided. And I was only going to run for two terms. So I, when I got rid of my law office, my friend D. Ori took it over. And the plan was, it was two-year terms. And I said, well, two two-year terms, then I'll get out, come back to practice. Well, I got hooked, and I loved it, and so I extended and kept running. So Four years, would have been four years. Instead, you were there for 14 years. Yeah. Which, which brings me to, uh, why did you quit after 14? I mean, all kidding aside, you were still wildly popular. Well, I'm, uh, not, I'm not kidding about it. People, uh, you know, make it, well, he's going to be mayor for, mayor for life. Yeah, and uh, I think I was, I don't know, remember, 50 1990 would have been your last 50, year there. Yeah, I would have been 55 then. Yeah, I was 55. Um, it was, first of all, I'll give you the response I gave the press at that time. There was a Republican governor of Michigan, Milliken. And when Milliken stepped down, people said, Governor, why are you stepping down? You're still very popular. And he used a phrase I never forgot. He said, I wanted to step down... When I go on parades, I want to see them waving their whole hand and not, <laughs> and not just their middle finger. And I thought it was a wonderful line. So I used that in my uh, exit interview. Uh, that together with the fact that uh, I just felt I really still loved the work and loved being mayor, but I just felt, you know, it's time to move along. And I was of an age when I still had enough things to do. I didn't know what, but 
that I would leave then. So it wasn't really highly deliberative. Why do you suppose people liked you, still do like you so much? Well, this is a corny, self-serving thing to say, but I'll say it. Uh, I think it was partly because I always felt that when all else failed, the truth was the right way to go. And so whether it was a happy truth or an unhappy truth or an embarrassing truth, it was better to just say this is what it was and and move along. And so I was, I've always been pretty blunt and direct in that way, and I think people like that in Minnesota. Um, I, I don't know what else you'd have to ask them, but I... Oh, I, I get enough letters when people thought I was dying. They talked about energy. They talked about the fact that I always was optimistic and smiled a lot. And that's because I felt like smiling, not because. Uh -huh. So I don't know. It was partly personality and partly that we did get a few things starting. You know, we got the $10 million grant for Lower Town. And we started that revamping, and and uh, so we did. We had some good stuff going. So, eight, 1986, Rudy Perpich, fellow DFLer, was the governor of Minnesota, and he was quite popular in his own right. Oh yeah. So, what? Uh, why did you decide to challenge him for the DFL nomination? Stupidity. <laughs> you can't leave that out. It was really very funny. I always got along very well with Rudy. And it, I wasn't running on an anti-Rudy. I just felt, ah, you know, that's... I learned enough that I knew that the governor's job would be a place where you could do a lot of good in education and arrest. And I had the general feeling that maybe his time was up. He had, had a long uh, run. Um and so uh, that's what did it. Uh, but, uh, and it's funny, uh, I'm going to depart a little and talk about Rudy Perpich because uh, he did a couple of things that were quite extraordinary that, one, I've never mentioned publicly, and I'll mention now. Uh, but the first thing was, two days after he beat me, soundly, I had 42% of the vote. For some reason, I remember that. <laughs> and apparently you need more than 50 in this country. Generally, yeah. Uh, as a <laughs> he, uh, the guy who was a big shot at General Mills, he was ahead of it, called me. Would I meet the governor and him down the block at the Minnesota Club? So I went there, and we met privately upstairs. And Rudy was just so thoughtful. And he's, here's what he said to me. I don't think people appreciated the depth of Rudy Perpich. And Rudy said to me, as part of the exchange, he said, you know, the old Chinese story about the tribal chief whose son was killed or shot, and people said to him, oh, this is terrible because your son... And the chief would say, it's too early to tell. And so Rudy was basically telling me, it's too early to tell whether this is as bad for you and as good for me as it now appears. Pretty profound. 
The second thing he did, unannounced to me totally, many, many years later, I got a call from the Humphrey Institute from a woman who didn't know me from Adam many years later. She said, your endowment has now matured where we can start distributing it. I said, what endowment? She said, well, the endowment in your name, she, and this is what she said, was there a perpich? I said, there was a perpich. He was the governor. Uh-huh. And he said, well, perpich gave $10,000 way back to name a fellowship or uh, after my name. He never said that to me. Huh. Imagine that. Not an incredible story. After you had challenged him, yeah. and you know, you'd figure as the incumbent governor, you wouldn't, yeah, you would, and the same he, party, you wouldn't do that. No, no, you wouldn't. But there was never anger during the campaign. Um, and uh, when he was uh, lieutenant governor, he and I became very friendly because of the capital area approach. We had the same views. And then we were a little bit alike, too. Uh, I remember being at the governor's mansion. And they at lunch, and they served grapefruit, and the grapefruit was heated. So I bit into the grapefruit, and the governor was sitting next to me. Bit into the grapefruit, and I made a funny face. I looked at him, and he says, "Yeah, I know. I never had hot grapefruit until I came here either." <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you know, when back to '86, when you were challenging Rudy Perpich. You were portrayed as the liberal Democrat, mostly, yeah. I think, because of the pro, your position, pro-choice position on abortion. But you were, you were clearly the, he was kind of the moderate, you were the liberal, that's the way it was portrayed. And guns, too. Yeah. The guns became an issue because they were going after Warren Spanis because he had the leadership against, uh, for, for gun control. How do you, go ahead. How do you, how do you portray yourself today? Liberal Democrat, Democrat, Independent, Republican, what are you? I never portrayed myself to begin with. Um, People never understood there were two major issues that stamped me as a liberal. One was the saddest uh, election I ever saw was in 78, my first re-election. The Gay Rights Amendment, which was passed under Larry Cohen and Ruby Hunt and other great people five or six years earlier, the gay rights ordinance in St. Paul, which was simply said you couldn't deny lodging or a meal to a person because of their sexual choices. That's all it said. It was defeated in St. Paul by 65%. And it was heartbreaking. The saddest night, I went down to the casino room of the St. Paul Hotel where the gay community was gathered watching the results. And anyone who thinks that public issues are not personal should have been in that room with me uh, because it was like, it was like we in St. Paul told them, to get out of town. That's what it was to them. And it was a really sadder than the election I lost, sadder than anything else, the saddest election night I've ever seen. The other issue, an abortion, 
I vetoed the city council uh, effort on a slim majority to bar Planned Parenthood from working in Highland. And Roe against Wade was in force. My lawyer was, my city attorney was clear and said, no, mayor, this is, so I was following the city attorney, which I always did and didn't try to be my own lawyer, but it was so clear. So I vetoed it uh, based on the fact that it was, would have been unconstitutional to try to bar people from having a Planned Parenthood in Highland. You talk about the gay rights situation and how that's evolved. Can You know, that's... Yeah. That must be yeah, quite extraordinary. Extra- but then on the other hand, you've got the abortion issue where it just seems like that's intractable. I mean, people are dug in and nothing seems to change. Well, I'm not sure I agree with you. I think the polling happens to be reflective of my views is that you can uphold abortion, but it should have limits. And Real liberals are always arguing, follow the science. They do that on the environment. Well, follow the science on fetal viability. I had a son who was born seven weeks early, and he was in a glass box for 72 days, and he lived. Now, that was 55 years ago. Now we have evidence of fetal viability even earlier than that. And therefore, if I, and I'm not sure I understand what the legislature did in Minnesota, but it looks to me like they've not incorporated Roe against Wade. They've gone farther than Roe against Wade and said that there are no term limits to the abortion. And I think that's wrong. I think what we know about fetal viability, which is my way of saying that if you got into a real conversation with people, I think a great majority of Americans would agree with what I've just said. And that is the woman's right to choose at to a certain point. Now, what's that point? I'm not going to, you know, I'm too old to know exactly what the date is. But you know darn well that the last trimester, that there's real possibilities of birth and life. And so you ought to have a conversation around that issue. And I think that conversation should be had, and I didn't read it happening in the Minnesota legislature. I read it, and I was very disappointed in the process and in our elected officials because it was either you're for it or against it rather than can't we talk about what is a just and humane resolution of this deep issue. You said it some point along the way that politics is supposed to be fun, and people who go into politics ought sure. to have fun, but that's certainly not the case right now. It doesn't seem to be for a lot of people. It get, it's gotten mean and ugly. Um, why? What happened? Boy, that's a profound question. I've been asking it of myself and others. Not many people do I get to talk to anymore. First, on a premise, I watch the news in the evening and I read it every morning. I read three papers. I think there are a lot of 
we're not lacking in good people entering politics today. So I don't buy the idea that we were somehow a different breed back then. I don't buy it. A lot of good and great people are in office today in the state and, and nationally. I think that the ability to compromise has been probably hindered, hampered, almost killed, I think, technology. Technology replacing journalism so that you get one side or the other and you just go there rather than have a conversation. It's not a real conversation. It's merely shouting, restating, sometime with obscenities, uh, your view versus any other. One of the things I do to stay current and balanced in what I learn is I watch every network every night. I watch Fox News. I watch all of them. So I don't just say I'm against Fox News, but I hear what they're saying. And I think journalism is partly to blame. I think, uh, I think journalism, as I've admired it over the years, is harder and harder to come by. Maureen Dowd just wrote a piece in the Times called A Requiem for the Newsroom. And I wonder if you read it. Did you? Uh, no, I, May I be not, permitted to ask a question? Yeah. Okay, and your answer is no. Her, her basic, she's a very good writer, and her basic point was the newsroom today is quiet, there's no exchange, people are back in their homes doing it, and that part of good journalism is absorbing all that's around you, and that's being lost. So I'm very, I'm as much worried about the decline and near demise of great journalism as I am by any other aspect. Well, let me ask you this. Now, Democrats will say, among other things, hey, Donald Trump is responsible for all this all mean and ugly stuff. Totally false. Not, don't, you don't agree with that? Not at all. Not at all. I, I disagree on every level. First of all, the liberals and Democrats are almost as intolerant as the right wing. As I observe, this is my observation. I could be all wet, but I see intolerance as the problem. Number two, Trump himself is more of a symptom than a cause. It has its roots much earlier than Trump. Remember Putnam? Remember bowling alone? You look at Putnam's propositions, and what he said was all of the community-oriented relationships are decaying. And by that, he talked about the bowling leagues, that bowling alone, that's where it came from. But also churches. And my familiarity with churches are primarily limited to marriages and funerals. But um, churches are a good example. Traditional churches are closing down. My daughter, Faith Church, closed down completely, so she moved to another church in downtown St. Paul. Uh, so the community-oriented and community-based organizations. And, you know, when you go to church, you don't see your fellow congregation and parishioners. You don't see as Republican or Democrat or left or right. They're your friends who are sharing a profound faith. 
And that sharing helps to reduce the fractiousness that might occur because who you're voting for is different from whom I'm going to vote for, you know? So an awful lot has changed way before Trump and beyond Trump that's causing it. It doesn't mean it's not equally profoundly worrisome. It is. I wish I could live long enough to see how we can come out of it. I come to the view, and I don't have a a clear answer, but one of them is for people in leadership positions to speak the truth, even when it may not be popular, but also some of it is skill and charisma and that kind of thing, the ability to pull people together who may be different than you are on many levels, but they unify for general, larger purposes. Let me ask you this. Now, uh, at the at the state capitol now, of course, the Democrats control the governor's office, both houses of the legislature. I think it's fair to say that both Minneapolis and St. Paul are one-party cities. I mean, there's virtually no Republican in sight in either city. Does that lead to good governance? Well, it's a challenge. Uh, it run. It, it's a risky. Uh, the risk of autocracy applies even in a democracy when you have one-party rule. I'm not saying it's automatic, but it's a risk. I mean, when I think back when I landed here, I was a kid lawyer, and because of my profession, I would talk to deputy attorney generals about different issues about a case, whether I'm in litigation or not. I never paid attention. I never even thought about the fact that Doug Head was a Republican and attorney general. I never thought about the fact that the governor was a Republican. Uh, Those issues, and then when you think about some of the Republicans, Dave Durnberger uh, is a great example. The great things he did for St. Paul just while I was mayor uh, were so terrific, and he was a Republican. Elmer Anderson, clearly one of the great Minnesotans who ever lived, was a Republican governor. Just, I think... He was defeated just before I came out here. Mm -hmm. Um, But so there was maybe, I'm not saying better or worse, but people more open to the middle in our past. I think there may be. But I think a good leader can still convey that, you know. Let's talk about a couple of big issues. Education. Now, you... uh you know, served on the school board, regents, board of regents, involved at both McAllister and Hamlin, so you have a wide range. Is public education in trouble? I think the move toward early uh, childhood education is long overdue and essential because you can have the best system and the best teachers in the world, K through 12, But if we have kids who have had no help at home at reading, I don't say that pejoratively, I say that factually, 
that either because of another language at home or people who don't read, you can't compare a kid who comes from a home with books were a natural ally of their life with kids who never saw a book. And therefore, that's not new, uh, that need for early childhood. Nancy Latimer devoted a good share of her work in philanthropy at, uh, at McKnight uh, around bringing that issue forward. But I think it's now getting more attention legislatively, and I think that's to the good. Um, Is that a problem that can be solved with more money, or do we have to take a different approach to education? Well, I wouldn't dismiss it simply as more money, but people cost money. And so if you need more early childhood caregivers, if you need more social workers, uh, those are real needs. And it takes money to pay for it. What can be, uh, let's move on to higher education. What in God's name can be done about that to make higher education affordable? Uh, As we used to say in New York, don't get me started on that. (laughs) I can't believe, uh, I can't believe, I mean, what happened in my old place of uh, Hamlin, uh, the it all has to do that has to do with tolerance mm-hmm. and the idea of telling a teacher that they can't show a photo give me a break <laughs> so there is a and it's happening in many so-called liberal universities and it's it's harmful um there are other examples but I'm old, and I don't remember all of them. What about housing, affordable housing? Now, you did a lot of work in that area, top advisor to the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development at the federal level. You were CEO of National Equity Fund, which worked on affordable housing. Uh, what can be done to uh, make it possible that everybody has a decent place to live? Well, some are starkly obvious, and that is if you're in a community that bars multifamily housing, you're really saying that you don't want anybody who's not well off to move into your neighborhood. And so that's one thing. Another thing is the economic incentive for builders should be built in, whether it's through federal programs that we used a lot, uh, from HUD or state or local ones, uh, you need to prime the pump and you do that with incentives. And uh, it does, it's tax money. But I think that's important. The, 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 the answer to your question is yes, affordable, proximate housing, which is proximate, proximal, nearby, mm-hmm. as you Americans like to say. <laughs> nearby work and the rest is essential, I think, to a vibrant community. Uh, and you can't, you cannot wait for the, the quote, the market. And I believe in capitalism, totally. Not totally, but somewhat. <laughs> uh, and, and you can't just say capitalism will take care of it 
because capitalism doesn't reward taking care of poor people. Only you can decide that. And I think the Walsh administration is moving. The last I read, I, I have trouble digesting details, but the last I read, this legislature came up with a $1 billion package for housing of all kinds. You are uh, credited uh, with basically redeveloping downtown St. Paul. What should be done now to revitalize downtown St. Paul, downtown Minneapolis for that matter? Uh, It's, I think, fair to say both downtowns are in really tough shape right now. Yeah. Well, for the fifth or sixth time during our conversation... Let me say I'm old and out of touch, and therefore my, my, my views may be dated. Um, I do think that the move we made and which continues now haltingly to create housing in downtown is one way of revitalizing it because where people live, if it's near shopping, the shopping is going to enjoy a rise as well. So I believe that. I think undeniably security uh, and law enforcement has to be recognized as a real need, not only in downtown. Uh, But I made some big mistakes in developing the I, we, but as mayor, we made some big mistakes uh, during that period of what I like to call the golden era. <laughs> but, but like, for example, when we built, uh, when we built the town square and that was not really flourishing and then 10 blocks away put up Gaultier Plaza, uh, and wondered why neither place worked very well. That was pretty dumb. And there were other uh, things that uh, were questionable as well. I think, from what I read, this riverfront, whatever the word they use for the gardens, that could be very exciting. They're, They're running, and it's going to be very expensive. But where the Old West Publishing plant was, that could be uh, very... So I, I uh, don't lose hope um, as downtown, as a gathering place. And I still enjoy my kids uh, go to the Winter Carnival, and I enjoy watching the the downtown activities that are there. And what Norm Coleman, the much beleaguered Norm Coleman, what he did was wonderful. What he did, I wouldn't have dreamed of trying, he got the new hockey team and built an arena that was used beautifully and as you, its acoustics are great as well. That was a coup. And if you travel from the Civic Center all the way through West 7th out to 494, it's transformed. And it's because it was triggered by Norm Coleman being able 
to capture that. And the same thing with this. I always kid, and I call Chris Coleman his nephew. But <laughs> his nephew, Chris Coleman, who built the two arenas, the soccer field. I mean, I thought soccer was for girls. I would never have worked for <laughs> I never would have worked for a, a soccer. But that soccer stadium is wonderful. And it's for the future. And his and his baseball stadium downtown. We had nothing but a walled in uh, abandoned factory there. So there are a lot of improvements that have made after I screwed up. Or Jim Jim Scheibel, Jim Scheibel, who followed me, was is a funny, uh, understated guy, but a good guy. And he was a councilman. I knew him for years. And they, you know, he introduced himself at a meeting. He said, "I'm Jim Scheibel. I became mayor right after Latimer, so my career was spent cleaning up a lot of mess." <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's 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 put you back in the mayor's office for now. Um, what are you going to do about crime in the city, in uh, the neighboring city of Minneapolis, uh, pretty much everywhere. I think it is everywhere, and so it's deeper than municipal policies. But I think St. Paul has the makings of it, always did. We started community policing 40 years ago. Uh, Bill McCutcheon, who was not loved, but he was respected, uh, talked to me about team policing before I ran for mayor. Uh, so the ingredients are still there. Uh, so, and I think this Axtell has been a great, and I just saw his new appointments. They were wonderful. A uh, Latina is now the deputy uh, chief. And so diversifying shouldn't replace competence, but it doesn't have to. There are so many competent people from diverse backgrounds. There's no reason you can't have a police force and a community reflecting that. And so I think we're on the way to doing that. Um, I think it's it's resolvable. And indeed, I don't have all the numbers, but I do think St. Paul is still a livable place. Uh, best president in your lifetime, U.S. president? Well, it's got to be Roosevelt. You're 88 years old, so. Not yet. <laughs> June 20. Best Minnesota? My, my best. mother used to say, if I said, Mom, can we go somewhere in the summer? She said, if God spares you, George. <laughs> and my, my brother, and she was Lebanese, you know, my mother, and my brother said, you know, mom thinks that God is up there with a spear looking for us and see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so I don't know how you, I don't know how you ignore Roosevelt. Best Minnesota governor in your, in your lifetime. Oh boy. Huh? Well, you know, he always disliked me. <laughs> But I think what Arnie Carlson did, some of it has to do with what skills you bring at that moment or time in history. And, uh, and Carlson, by the way, he's incredible. He's still writing essays, and it's incredible uh, what he's doing at his age. 
But I think that what he did, he remained, and he was a social liberal, and he managed the budget beautifully, so they put things straightened out that were not before he was. I, I don't want to end by saying he was therefore the best governor in my memory, uh, because, again, I was a little late for Elmer Anderson, but he was the greatest man I ever knew. And I used to know him after uh, Nick Coleman asked me, <laughs> Nick Coleman, who I think was devilish, and who was my hero, uh, the Senate Majority Leader. He befriended me very early after I landed in St. Paul. So he calls me up and he says, uh, Georgi, how would you like to be a regent? I said, I don't know, what does a regent do? And then he told me, I said, well, it's all right. So it turns out he put my name in, and you know who he had me as my opponent? Elmer Anderson, <laughs> the chair, the chair, the chair of the Board of Regents. And so at a certain date, like within a month or two after I testified, he said, Georgi, I've been uh, doing the headcount. I said, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, what were we talking about? Well, you were talking about oh, the governors. Best, best what about U.S. Senator from Minnesota, the best one? Well, I, gee whiz, when you got Humphrey and Mondale, there I have to break it up in this way. Far and away, the best senator for St. Paul during my career was Dave Dernberger. I mean, there's nothing that he didn't respond to when I needed his help. And that was when Reagan took office. Um, so there's that piece. And then there's Humphrey and Mondale. Right. Well, then you're talking about much broader uh, kinds of international. I mean, Mondale was extraordinary. What he did in, in uh, the civil rights area, changed the filibuster rule moderately. Now, Mondale was just wonderful. So that's my answer. Jimmy Carter was president uh, during your reign of terror yeah. here in St. Paul. Yes. He's often branded as a failure. Was he? I called him the book bag president. By that I mean we would meet with him in the cabinet room and we would talk about obscure things like can we can we save the UDAG program? Or what are we going to do about HUD amendments? Well, no president should understand those questions. But he did, and he would answer everything. And, and of course, that was during a period that he was cutting back on domestic spending because we had a major budget shortfall at the federal level. And then when Reagan came on, uh, if you asked him that kind of question, he had Cap. He said, Cap, what do you think about that? Or he had Ed Meese. He said, Ed, what do you think about that? And that's a president, someone who knew Reagan was greatly underrated and, and who knew how to delegate and tell. I'm not saying everything he did I agreed with, but I'm just saying from the standpoint of presiding, 
But Carter was a great, is a great man. And what he did internationally, seeking peace. But I think the general consensus of Carter is one that I share. And that is a very great and good man who is not a great president. What do you uh, want your legacy to be? But I mean, you know, how do you want to be remembered? Somewhere along the line, you said it was with trees and kids. What was that all about? Oh, that I never. Boy, you really researched this, didn't you? No, didn't. Uh, trees and kids. Well, first of all, I don't know about other old people, but I don't think much about my legacy. You know, I think about what am I going to have for lunch? <laughs> Important things. <laughs> But I think that's a good answer I gave. That was smart of me. Uh, trees and key, kids. And by that, I meant we had to plant a lot of trees when Dutch Elm took over. By the way, that was another Latimer screw up. Because <laughs> there were ways of saving more elm than we did in those years, even back then. And, but we planted thousands of trees. And so, I think that's terribly important to people. And if you look at Summit Avenue, uh, that's a good example. Can you imagine it without trees? Yeah, it's just awful. Um, and kids, I think I've already talked about that issue. Uh, and looking over Nancy Moore Latimer's shoulder, I learned so much about the Hmong coming in and the need of kids for early childhood from her and her work, and her research at McKnight. Um, so I still, I wouldn't say kids more than trees, but what we do for the littlest and the most vulnerable of our society is finally the test of what our quality is. You still carry the torch for Nancy, don't you? It's a great love story. Yeah, but you know, People talk about grieving. I don't grieve. I don't grieve for Nan. She's with me. A lot of people go to the grave. I got my tombstone already planted there, so the Catholics can't deny me. Uh, so I know it's there. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't grieve. Like I've been so lucky in my life, my brothers, my mother and father, my friends, my wife, my kids. What a lineage, just lucky. And so, but I feel they're with me, they're in me. I don't feel grief. I don't know how other people feel. I mean, obviously you grieve. And of course, Nan was, died two and a half years dying. And so I was with her every hour during that two and a half years. And so, and when the Protestants say, she passed away. I said, no, I was with her. And the window was open. <laughs> there was no passing. I just, she just died. Uh, yeah, she was, she was special. Quite opposite me. Modest, quiet-spoken, smart, actually thought and read before she opinionated. <laughs> really a pain in the neck to live with. <laughs> George Latimer, thanks so much for the conversation. Are you washing your hands of me? Is that it? That's it. Okay. Yep. 
That's former NPR News host Gary Eichten talking to another old friend, former St. Paul Mayor George Latimer. Thanks to the mayor and to Gary for doing that for us. And that will do it for our program this Friday, and for a while, we're going to take a summer break. Thanks for being with us throughout the legislative session. It's been a real privilege bringing you this program. For our politics reporting team and our producer, Matthew Alvarez, I'm Mike Mulcahy saying thanks for listening and have a great weekend.